Welcome to Parenting Teens with Dr. Cam, a podcast about navigating adolescence without losing our minds. Each week, I guide you around the teenage landmines with practical tips, simple solutions, and words of encouragement. I'm your host, Dr. Cam. Let's get on with the show. Hello, Calm Parents. Welcome back to another episode of Parenting Teens with Dr. Cam. I'm your host, Dr. Cam. Did you know that one out of three kids between the ages of 13 and 18 will find themselves in an abusive relationship just this year? That statistic is terrifying to us parents, which is why I've invited Nina Corcoran to teach us what we need to know about teen dating violence. Nina combines her own experience as a sexual assault survivor with her decade of training as a police officer to empower and educate young adults on toxic relationships, dating violence, and consent. She also writes young adult fiction novels focused on raising awareness surrounding difficult topics teens often struggle with. Today, Nina is going to provide us some tips and insight to help us protect our teens from dating violence and empower them to recognize abusive relationships and break free. Welcome, Nina. I am so happy you could join us today. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. So let's just start with your own story and how you became an advocate for sexual assault victims, teen dating violence victims, all of all of the above. Yeah, so um, my story actually starts when I was just 11 years old. And I met the boy that would become the man that I would later marry when we were in middle school in just sixth grade. And our friendship at the time was extremely toxic, but no one had ever sat down and talked to me about what a toxic relationship is. And so I didn't recognize that all of those things, the the bullying, the belittling, the humiliation, the turning around and being super sweet and kind and nice mm. and, and that cycle, I didn't realize that that was toxic. That was just what our friendship was. And being um, a five foot 10 flaming redhead with a little bit of a, with a little bit of a self-confidence issue in the sixth grade, I clung to this guy mm. because he was charming and nice and popular and he was, you know, my connection to the crowd that I wanted to be hanging out with. And so that friendship eventually over the years did lead to a romantic relationship and all of those behaviors also followed into mm -hmm. that relationship and then escalated to other behaviors, which I never associated with to toxic relationships or abuse because they were so small and so such a normal part of our relationship yeah. at this point. I took them from the friendship and justified them in our, in our relationship as they got worse. And as my, um, my experience got more abusive without me even noticing. And so this went on for, for decades, <laughs> for, for, yeah. for 15 years. And I did, I married this man, um, and our relationship did eventually become a physically violent relationship, a sexually violent relationship, a financially um, abusive relationship. And I never recognized any of it. Even after I became a police officer, I, ha I have been a police mm -hmm. officer for three years 
before I realized that my relationship had not only had not only become toxic, but abusive. And it took me all that time because it started so long before when I was just 11 years old. And so it became my normal. I accepted it as normal. And so that's really what started me on this journey is if somebody, I feel like if anybody had talked to me when I was 11, 12, 13 about what toxic relationships were, not even, not even getting so much into the intricacies of domestic violence and dating violence, but just toxic relationships, because you can have a toxic relationship with, with anyone, a friend, a parent, a coworker, anyone can be a toxic relationship for you. So if someone had had that conversation with me and I had been able to recognize those signs in this, in this boy, when he was just a boy and we were just friends, my whole future could have been different. Mm. So that's, that's what started me on this journey towards educating teens. But unfortunately, that's only half of the battle because I can do a great job educating the teens. And if they go home and say to their parents, like, this is what I learned. And their parents say, that's not true. Or that's, you know, that's not a big deal or, or mm-hmm. whatnot. That's that student has now lost all faith in me, yeah. not, not their parents, me. So I recognize that the education has to start at the parent level as well. And unfortunately, 80% of parents of teenagers don't think teen dating violence is an issue. So that's a huge number. Yes. And the reality Astoundingly is- huge. Yes. And so the reality is when you talk about one in three teenagers between the age of 13 and 18 becoming a victim of dating violence at some point during their teenage years- and then 80% of their parents not thinking that's a big deal, there's a gap there. There's a huge gap there. Um, and so the, that education needs to kind of come from both ways and meet in the middle so that we can lower these statistics and, and stop teen dating violence at the, le- at the teen level and then hopefully stop domestic violence at a higher level because of that. So Nina, please explain to me how that gap why does that gap exist? Like, why do 80% of that is a number that is way bigger than I would ever imagine. Why does it do 80% of the parents not feel so I, or believe that that's there? So I think it's a, a couple fold problem, right? So I think part of the problem is we tend to minimize teenage relationships. Mm. We think of them as puppy love. We think of them as not a big deal. There are, you know, we, we downplay them because sometimes they only last a week and, and all of these things. But the reality is, even if the relationship itself is a very minimal relationship, it's building that foundation that those kids are going to build their permanent relationships and their long-term relationships on top of. And people like to say that, you know, the high school sweetheart is kind of a a rare thing and that it never happens and um, that they'll learn in later life how to have serious relationships. But all of those serious relationships in later life are based on what they learned as teenagers from those week-long relationships and from watching their friends have have relationships at, you know, 13, 14, 15 years old. So I think that's part of the problem is as adults, we kind of minimize puppy love. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I think that there's also 
an issue where we were taught or weren't taught that this is an issue Mm -hmm. so that we don't think it's an issue because how many times were you told boys were boys are mean to you because they like you? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, so that attitude and those things that we've accepted as part of, as part of just part of the teenage growing up dating experience are, are toxic and are not what we should be teaching, but it's what we've accepted. So I think what happens is it's not so much that um, parents are consciously saying, you know, teen dating violence is fine, but what they're kind of portraying by accepting these traits or thinking that these traits are normal because they experience them is they're just perpetuating the cycle. So I think that's really part of the bigger issue in that I think if parents were asked straight out, like, you know, do you think that teen dating violence would be an issue if it existed, they would obviously think that it did, but they don't think that it exists because they don't recognize it. Ah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think a a lot of things, I am guessing there's pieces of denial, there's pieces of not recognizing it. I think there's also pieces of what has become socially acceptable or expected, like you were saying. I mean, we all have heard, oh, they're picking on you and pulling your hair and and saying nasty things to you because they like you. And you're like, oh, okay. Um, Right. I mean, we've all, and I think there's things that have been normalized that are not okay. And we're seeing this getting like more and more and more and more accepted. And what's interesting to me and the kids I talk to, what they think is okay. And I have heard stories from kids 13, 12, 13, 14 years old, where, you know, boy, they'll be like, well, for a boy to like me, I have to give them a blow job or for them Mm -hmm. to drive me home or for them to do these things like, and they think that's an acceptable thing for them to ask and they do it. And it's like, how are they getting this message that that's okay? And that it's not only it's okay, it's expected of them. Right. And I think we're just going... Yeah, this is 12 years old. Yes. Right? That we're hearing this. So how, like, what is happening in terms of how we are communicating to our kids and how we're teaching our kids what is okay, what treatment is okay, and what's not? Well, I think part of the problem is we're not communicating with our kids. We're not having those conversations. And so I think in... In my case, I, I feel as though it wasn't an acceptable talk, topic to talk to my parents about, you know, and it wasn't that my parents specifically did anything. And I'm sure this is the case for a lot of people. It's not that they specifically did anything that, that made me feel like I couldn't approach them with the topic, but it was, they never initiated the conversation. So that made me feel like it was like something that we didn't talk about, um, And so with my own 13 year old, we at the dinner table, um, we make an effort to at least bring up these things that are in the news and these things that we're talking about. And, you know, we, we let them ask questions and, and therefore make it an acceptable thing to approach if they do have questions. And, and there's always going to be that awkwardness where, you know, we, it's, it's a weird thing to talk about with your kid, right? But the more you talk about it, the less weird it is. Mm-hmm. And the younger you start talking about it, the, 
the more acceptable. So, you know, if we start talking about it at 11 and we start with just the regular toxic stuff, and then as we kind of age up, we start talking about more in-depth stuff when they're 16 and 17 and they have a more serious issue, it's going to be really natural for them to come and and talk to you about it because they've been doing it for years. So I think part of the problem is we always assume my kid's too young to start having this conversation. And then by the time we feel like our kid is old enough, it's too late to do it without, without being, being awkward or or feeling weird. Right. So I think that's the first step is recognizing that your kid is almost never too young to start having this conversation because you can have a conversation about what a healthy friendship is Mm -hmm. pretty much in kindergarten. You, you know, that's an appropriate time to start having those conversations about, about the fact that, you know, you shouldn't have to, um, be bullied essentially to have a friend and you shouldn't have to put up with somebody making fun of you. Or, um, you know, my, my daughter had a friend that, that always made fun of her name and she didn't like that, but she couldn't get her to stop. And so we explained to her, like, you know, if someone's doing something that you don't like and they won't stop, that doesn't, they're not your friend because a friend would recognize that, you know, what they're doing is, is not what you want them to do. So you can start having those conversations at a very young age and then just start to age them up as the child gets older. And I think that's, that's the issue is we always say, you know, my kid's too young to start talking about dating violence. And then we don't recognize that at 13, a lot of kids have already had their first girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever it is, romantic relationship. Even if it is one of those not serious relationships, they're already building those blocks to put the foundation of their more serious relationships on. So we're missing the boat by waiting for them to be old enough. Yeah. And they're also, that's when they're really in that prime of defining who they are and how people view them. Mm -hmm. And so there's such a need for belonging and acceptance that if they believe that this is what they need to do to Mm -hmm. belong and to be accepted, they're going to go where they're not comfortable because it's more important for them to belong. And I think as parents, it's really important for us to make and help our kids accept who they are by accepting who they are. And I think we have so many messages as parents of wanting them to be bigger and better because we see potential in them. But I think the message often comes as you're not good enough who you are. So you have to dance around for me and appease and do what I need you to do to make me feel like you're doing what you need to do. And they're getting this message that they have to dance around for other people and Mm -hmm. do what's not true and authentic to them to be acceptable and likable and lovable and belong. And so I think some of these messages um, that we're creating in our own relationships with our own kids model toxic relationships. What do you think of that? (laughs) Absolutely. And it's, again, it's not intentional. We don't set out out to say, you know, not saying that at all. No, not intentional. But but a lot of times we don't recognize it because it isn't intentional and you're not doing it on purpose. And you might recognize that it happened to you, that you were constantly trying to get attention or, you know, live up to whatever. And you're saying, you know, I'm not doing that to my kids, but then at the same time, you're doing that to your kids, um, unbeknownst to you. Mm -hmm. And so I think again, having, having that open dialogue where you can 
communicate with your, with your kid in a more um, casual way where they feel comfortable saying things to you and explaining things to you, then you do, you kind of open that up for them to be like, well, you know, I don't want that. You know, I want you to go to soccer practice and be the star. Well, I don't, I don't want that. I don't want to be, I just want to go to soccer practice to have fun. I want to do this, you know, whatever. So I think a lot of times we do model that behavior of Mm -hmm. making kids think that they have to appease others and that they have to do. And so there is, there's that power dynamic, right? Cause you do have to, you have to have some standards. You have to, you have to have some control, but you also have to teach that they can't accept that from, from everyone. So there has to be that line of it's okay for, it's okay for you to have respect for a parent. It's okay for you to have respect for a teacher or coach, whatever, but not everyone is going to like you and not everyone is going to respect you. And you don't have to do anything to earn that from those people. Like, you know, if a, if a teammate or a classmate or someone else is just not your people, you know, they just don't like you for whatever reason, that's fine. You don't have to beg, borrow and steal to get them on your side. And then, and then that kind of relates to relationships as well, because a lot of times we feel like being in the relationship and holding on to the relationship is more important than being happy in the relationship. You know, being able to say I'm so-and-so's girlfriend or I'm so-and-so's boyfriend is sometimes more important to, at that age, especially than just being able to say, well, I'm, you know, I'm happy. Yeah. So you say at that age, Nina, I'm just going to jump in here and say, I know far too many adults that do that because it's something that we started then. Exactly. And now we don't even notice it as adults either. Exactly. And, And that that attitude played into me leaving my relationship 15 years later as a 20 something year old adult, because I had that fear of, of being alone and that fear of, well, this is, you know, all I've known. And this is, um, you know, is anyone else going to ever, ever like me again? And that kind of, that kind of thing. And that, that attitude started way back then and that's where that comes from and so it's you know it doesn't go away and when we try to explain that these these things that they're learning now really are going to affect them in the future a lot of people you know call bs and say that's not true but i'm living proof that not only is it true but you can't even train it out of someone sometimes because i was literally a police officer trained to look for these things i would have told you i was an expert in domestic violence and I was living in domestic violence and had been for years. Yeah. That though you had used the word justification Mm -hmm. um, earlier. And that really stuck out to me because I think we do, we justify things in front of our kids a lot and we're modeling that. And I think we teach our kids to justify those because we prioritize certain things. And I think we often send the message because we believe it as well. It's so ingrained in us. Our value exists on who, whether we're married or not, or who we're married to. It exists on what we achieve. Our value exists on it. Like our value is about performance and about what is kind of outwardly shown. Mm-hmm. And when that's our value, the things we sacrifice to be able to show that value and obtain that value are our own, our own self and our own self-worth and our own feeling of being okay. We sacrifice all that because we don't 
we've not shown, we've never been shown value in that and who we authentically are. We're shown value in this. And so I see that from kids to adults all the time, sacrificing their own happiness and their own self-worth to obtain these things that we've taught everyone is what's valuable. So let's go step back a little bit. And we're like, okay, we're getting that now. We get it. How do we help our kids identify toxic relationships? What are some key tips for us and for our kids to look for? So when I, when I have this conversation with teens, so, you know, I will go do assemblies and health class talks and things like that. And I tell my story because I think for, for teens, what I'm trying to get across to them is that the bad guy in my story doesn't have horns. He's not painted green. Like, you know, he looks like Prince Charming. Mm -hmm. And if you're just looking at my story from the outside, Prince Charming looks pretty, pretty good. And once you, it's really not until you start breaking my story down and looking at all the little things that you recognize that Prince Charming is actually the villain. Mm. And it's those little things that we don't recognize because we've come to accept them and because they're so small and so subtle that they slip into our relationships kind of easily. And then they become, they take hold and they, we start building on top of them. And part of the issue that I see is that the media and society in general has kind of dramatized dating violence to be, you know, that it has to be violent in order to be valid. And so we, we picture the victims of these, these relationships as one thing, right? You see black eyes, sunglasses, um, you know, split lips, like that's what we picture in our heads as that's what it looks like. So if what we're dealing with doesn't look like that, then we assume that everything's okay because it's not that bad. But not that bad shouldn't be an acceptable range of judging our relationship like your relationship should be good or you should not have one Mm -hmm. so I think the most important thing is to teach that those little things the the controlling behaviors the you know that it's not it's not okay that your boyfriend or girlfriend is constantly texting and calling and asking where you are and checking up on you and those kind of things like you might think that at first It sounds cute, like, oh, they care about me so much. They're constantly checking in on me. But you have to be able to recognize that as a form of control and recognize that that's a little thing. It's not a big thing. It doesn't it doesn't jump out in front of us and say this is a this is a red flag. We can easily overlook that constant communication, that constant checking in, that constant needing to know where you are as caring or parents do it, too. And that's yes. how we show caring. Exactly. So we learn that that's caring, right? Exactly. And so that's the problem is these little things snowball, yeah. right? They become bigger things. And so one of the things that I do in my talk is I kind of throw out some scenarios of, um, you know, if, you're, if your significant other says to you, um, oh, you know, we're going to this party. Um, but you don't want to go looking like that. Why don't you put on, why don't you put on something cuter? Or, you know, why don't, why don't you, why don't you run upstairs and just change into a skirt real quick, um, before we leave? Well, okay. 
on face value, if you just look at that real quick, you know, oh, you know, they just want me to look nice at this party or whatever. But if you start to kind of dissect that little thing, especially if it becomes a thing that's happening all the time, that's a controlling behavior. That's, that's that person either sexualizing you or want, you know, wanting you to look a certain way at a party. And so I start to go through some of these scenarios that you might not recognize immediately as being red flags, but they should be. And when we put them in a certain way, when you say no one should control you, no one should control where you go, no one should control who you hang out with, no one should control what you wear or what you eat or any of those things, everyone will look at you and say, yeah, obviously, obviously they shouldn't control those things. But when I say it like that, hey, why don't you run upstairs and put a skirt on real quick? Or you don't, you don't want to eat that, like, you know, have something else instead. Do they look the same way? Is it as obvious to you that 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 is the red flag? And that's the problem, right? We tell kids all of these things. We say, no one should hit you. No one should do this. No one should do that. But we don't tell them what that looks like in real life. And so when those little little things get slipped into the conversation, get slipped into our relationships, we don't recognize them as those big glaring red flags that we taught them they should look for in their relationships. They're they're subtle. And that's, we're making, when a lot of times when we do education, we make it seem like it'll be really, really easy to recognize the bad guy, that they're going to be, you know, have this big sign over their head that says, you know, you know, I'm the bad guy, I'm abusive, I'm manipulative, so stay away from me. And they don't. And we don't teach them that it's these little things that slip into our relationships, that slip into the, to our daily lives, that that's what builds up to be a toxic relationship. So for parents and for, and for teens, we have to be paying attention to how those things make us feel and how they make us um, start to change. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a hard thing for parents to, to kind of not recognize, but to kind of figure out where, where to step in yeah. because teenage years is a time where you should be changing and kind of exploring. And, you know, you don't want to step on, somebody trying to explore something that they enjoy or that, you know, when they're looking for themselves, but it shouldn't be to benefit somebody else either. And I think that's something looking back on my past that I think, and having had some conversations with my parents, they recognized that I was changing myself to fit what this guy Mm -hmm. wanted, but they, you know, my mother was like, well, who was I to, to say you know, that you shouldn't be like that. Maybe you liked it. And it's, mm-hmm. it, so I understand how difficult that can be, but that lane of communication needs to be open and needs to be non-judgmental so that you can say, well, you know, you had, you had sweatpants on before and, and now you just went and put this skirt on. Do you want to wear that skirt? Or, you know, it's 32 degrees out. Like, why are you wearing that skirt? You know, mm-hmm. and kind of, kind of open up those conversations because if that, if that skirt makes her feel good, it makes her like, happy and, and that's what she wants to wear then albeit but if she only went and changed because her significant other told her to then then there's the problem right? yeah so that's that's kind of how we have to kind of figure out well who who really wants this and if you have an open lane of communication where you can have that that conversation that's how you can help them figure out who wants that and figure out where that toxic relationship lies. But it's really difficult if that, if that communication isn't, isn't established because it can just seem like 
exploration at the same time. So if we see our kids in a relationship and we're like, oh my God, landmines, landmines, this is toxic. This isn't good. What can we do to help? Because I see a lot of parents that are like, "Uh uh-uh, you're not allowed to see them, shut that down, not healthy. And the kids sneak out and see them anyway and think the parents are, you know, full of it. Or we, like the other parent, we're like, well, it's their business. I'm not going to get involved. Like, what do we do? Yeah, so it's a a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation, (laughs) right? But I think the important thing is you being overly strict comes off as judgmental and comes off as, as that you don't understand me type of type of thing. And that's when that, you know, rebellious streak comes out and we want to do things. And, and there are some lessons that my mother probably told me a half a dozen things that I was like, yeah, yeah, whatever. And had to go out and learn on my own. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you're never going to be able to teach them everything, but your hope is that you can kind of like at least head it off a little bit. And so I think if you're recognizing these, these red flags and that these signs, the last thing you want to do is just say, you know, absolutely not. You cannot do this. Um, and then the other thing you don't want to do is ignore it completely. So I think opening up those non-judgmental conversations and just saying, you know, hey, I see this. What do you see? Mm-hmm. You know, make it a conversation and not just you telling them. Because the telling them is what, what goes in one ear and out the other, right? And you know your teen, you know, you know how, how well you can communicate with them. But I've definitely found that having that communication where you're asking for feedback and you're saying, well, you know, I see this as a red flag. Is this something that always happens or, or am I misunderstanding the situation? Because obviously I don't see you, you know, interacting with this person all the time. And this can be, this is again, a conversation you can have about friends, about um, romantic partners that you can have this conversation about other, other situations as well, anything that you think is toxic. And you can just kind of open that dialogue of like, well, no, it's not always like this. Sometimes it's like this and you can, you know, okay, well, you know, that's not really, a, not really something I see as a good thing either. Like what, what is it about that, that that you think is okay. Mm -hmm. And just open the communication rather than telling them straight out that it's that, you know, this is bad, or this is not okay. Let them kind of figure it out themselves. And that's what I've found is the most helpful is you helping them come to their conclusion. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Pushing, pushing jelly. (laughs) It's teaching them how to recognize it. I mean, we're not going to be following them around their whole lives, hopefully not, you know, saying that that's a good relationship. That's not, we need to help them find the tools to do it. The other thing we need to help them learn how to do is to remove themselves from a toxic relationship, yes. which is not easy too. I know a lot of people, again, in toxic relationships that are very fully aware they're toxic relationships and can't get themselves out of it. There's fear, there's fear of being alone, there's fear of retribution, there's fear of all kinds of stuff. So how do we help our kids once they recognize this is not a great relationship? Um, How do we get them out of it? So, so this is, again, a a teaching, teaching kind of point, Mm -hmm. because 
So it depends on the relationship, right? So if you're in a toxic relationship with say your boss, where it's just, you know, it's a mentally draining environment, you are, but it's your boss. That's one of those conversations where, you know, you have to teach them how to protect themselves in that situation that they maybe can't get out of. So maybe, maybe they, for whatever reason, they're in this situation, they don't think they can change jobs right now. And you have to have that conversation about setting boundaries and sticking to boundaries and really just recognizing that they're in a toxic relationship and that this person is toxic for them and kind of help help them develop healthy coping mechanisms to deal with that situation for that time and help them slowly remove themselves. Because, I mean, we've all been in, in a job that, you know, you can't leave for whatever reason, financially or what, whatever. And you recognize that, you know, it's toxic for you, you know, it's draining your mental health, but you have to be there. So telling them, telling your kid that they are always going to need to remove themselves from a toxic relationship isn't, that's not teaching them reality, because you yourself have probably not followed that advice perfectly. So we, we do need to teach them a little bit about how to deal with a toxic person, because there are going to be toxic people in our lives that we can't remove ourselves from. And, and maybe it's a, you know, maybe it's a relative, you can't remove yourself from that person, because it's, you know, grandma or, or whoever it is. So you you just teach them how to protect themselves so that they are prepared for the kind of toxic encounter, how to take that, you know, that self care afterwards and, and set those boundaries of like, okay, you know, I, I spent 20 minutes with grandma and, and now I'm moving on, whatever it is. But if it is a relationship that they can remove themselves from, so friendships, um, you know, toxic romantic relationships, things like that, those are going to be situations that the best situation is to go just no contact to just break it off and say, be able to tell yourself that, this is not healthy for me. Um, and I am taking the steps of removing myself and, and that's it. Of course, in a perfect world, you know, that works. But if you are in a, you know, school of 500 kids and you see that toxic person 17 times a day in various classes, like, you know, that's not, no contact's probably not an option. Right. But but you, again, can learn boundaries and ways to protect yourselves from those toxic encounters. If it's a toxic relationship, a toxic romantic relationship, setting that boundary of, you know, we're not in a relationship anymore and, you know, we're not, we're not hanging out, we're not communicating, we're, you're not texting me, we, you know, we're, I've blocked you and now I'm just going to see you and, you know, I'll be, I'll be polite and I'll be nice, but I have, I've set that boundary. We are not we are not together anymore or or whatnot. And the same works for the same works for friendships. It's really about boundaries and being able to have the, the faith in yourself that you can stick to those boundaries, know that you are worth sticking to those boundaries. Mm, And that's a big one. That's what you teach. That's what you teach to your child. You can't control it. Right. Model. And 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 that's the other thing. You should be, that's another way to open up that conversation is when you talk about you removing yourself from toxic relationships, whether that be family, bosses, friends, um, you know, 
everyone has experienced, whether it's an abusive relationship or not is different, but a toxic relationship, everyone has those. So when you talk to your kid about like, yeah, I was in a situation similar and this is what I did and maybe that didn't work. So this is what I kind of wish I had done. Just opening up those communication lines, but modeling that your child is worth holding their boundaries is going to be huge in a lot of aspects of their life. Yeah. So I want to circle back real quick because we had been, you know, we said this is really about like teen dating violence, which I think it's all relevant because we're trying to help them get out of that situation before it gets to there, right? And realizing that it is a real true thing. But what else can we do to help our kids if they find themselves in a situation that there's assault, sexual assault, you know, verbal assault, there is dating violence, what can we do to help at that point? So one of the big things that I have kind of chatted with a lot of people about is really removing in your own home, the stigma of victim being a bad thing. Mm. You know, in a lot of situations, we have, for some reason, sexual assault, um, domestic violence, dating violence, we've made it so that the victim is something is someone to be ashamed someone to be embarrassed, someone to be, you know, you don't want to admit that it's happened. We've made Mm -hmm. it so that this victim is a bad thing. And when you look at, when you look at other types of crimes, no one, no one is ashamed to be the victim of a robbery. You know, it's like, it's, you're outraged that you're the victim of a robbery, but the victim of a sexual assault or, or dating violence is all of a sudden, like, it's somehow your fault. And so I think one of the first steps is to really remove that negative connotation so that victim becomes something that's, you know, a strong person, something that's overcoming an issue that they're, Mm. they're somebody that's fighting back against something that's happened to them. And that's what it is. It's something that's happened to them. It's not something that they did. And so I think survivor, not a survivor. And I love that connotation. I love talking about survivors, but I also, you know, I don't want people to be ashamed of saying that they're a victim. And that's, that's kind of Mm -hmm. the first step is to make it so that they're not afraid or embarrassed or ashamed to come to you and start this conversation because they think that that's going to make them weak or make you ashamed or make you embarrassed or, you know, that you're going to, you're going to um, be upset that they got themselves in this situation or, or whatnot. So really making that atmosphere, that environment, some, something that they're comfortable coming forward in that situation. And I think that's the first step. And then once, once a, a teen or, or anyone really has come to you and made some, this kind of disclosure, you need to know what your next options are. And you need to recognize that you're not alone. And so a lot of times I think that parents and victims in general feel like they are just on their own on this island where they don't know what to do. And we've done that as a, a society by making it something that we can't talk about But when you look at the statistics, this is really a common thing. So you shouldn't feel alone. You should recognize that this, unfortunately, is happening to people. And so you're not the first one to experience this. 
So you shouldn't feel alone. You should know that these resources and stuff are out there. We just aren't talking about them. We're not praising them. We're not talking about, you know, the fact that they're available. So you don't know about them. So you feel alone. Yeah. So recognize that almost every community has a, a resource, a domestic violence and a sexual assault resource that is available to people of all ages, almost every community. And if your community doesn't have one like directly inside of it, I'm willing to bet that there's one just outside of it that, that works with, with folks yeah. from your community. I, I, have a, I have links of resources too that I can share as well. Yes. And so that's the first step is knowing where to go for, for resources. And as wonderful as Facebook is for, for making a community, I would go to some, some of the more reputable resources first. Um, I love the fact that there are so many communities on Facebook and on Instagram that people have been able to connect and not feel alone by connecting to, but, but just recognize that there are some more reputable ways to figure out what your next steps are before you jump on Facebook. Um, and know that there are options for for you. There isn't one set path that mm-hmm. makes this better. What makes it better is communication and um, non-judgment and being willing to work on it together. So for some people, that is going the direction of the police. For some people, that's the direction of going and anonymously going to a hospital and getting getting things taken care of, but never going to the police. There are some people that don't want to go to the hospital. They don't want to go to the police. They just want to deal with it. And all of those things are okay, but you need to know what, what you're choosing and what that means for, the, for your future, which those are all things that you can find on those, on those reputable resources like the hotline and, and things like that. And then recognize that it should be a conversation But if we're talking about a teen, it shouldn't be a conversation that you're driving based on what you want. Right. A lot of times I find that victims who are teens are pushed in a certain direction because it's what the parent thinks is right. But they don't, if they, especially if they have never had a similar experience and they don't know what they're pushing that child towards, like a lot of times they push towards, towards um, justice and in, in the police route. And that's fine if that's what the child wants. But if the child is against that, like very against that, that's going to be another traumatic experience on top of what is already a traumatic experience. Right. It's, it's giving them the exact opposite message of what you're saying is that right. you have a voice, you need to stand up for yourself, but not to me. Right. And that's not a good message. <laughs> so I think, so my advice if you are ever in this situation would be to educate yourself on what the options are and then educate your teen on what the options are and then make a decision together about the steps forward. And I think doing that together is going to help keep that communication line over open so that when there is an issue, you know, say I thought I was fine. You know, I thought I was fine for a year and a half. And then all of a sudden I wasn't fine anymore. And I had to figure out why I wasn't fine a year and a half later all by myself because I didn't feel like I had anybody I could talk to. Yeah. If I, if, if that's the case, you know, that's the time like, okay, well maybe let's look into 
you know, finding a therapist that you are comfortable with or finding someone to talk to a support group, whatever it is, you know, but they have to feel comfortable coming back to you. So have that conversation and leave it open-ended so that a year from now, five years from now, if that's, if that's where they are in their healing journey and they need to come back and ask for something once things have processed, because that whole healing thing is, is very chaotic. Yeah. Yeah. There, there is no one linear, linear way to heal from trauma. So you have to leave that door open and, and make sure that your team knows that you are there for them, but you are also supporting them in what they want. And so mm-hmm. if they don't want whatever it is that, you know, whatever route that you want, you just have to be okay with that. And it's hard because we think we know best and we think we know what's best for, for our, our kids. And we, we really sometimes want to push in the, in these situations and it's hard to let go, but especially, especially when you're talking about older teens that, that have the, you know, full understanding, you have to go with what they want because traumatizing them again is not the answer. No. And, and I, I think know Nina, that's hard to hear. It is really hard to hear. And I think Nina, the other piece, and we're, we're out of time for now, but I think we need to come on and continue us because we've only talked about the victims. And I think the bigger problem is not how to help the victims. It's why there's so many victims. Why are there so many people? I think what we're not addressing remotely enough is what is leading all of these people to believe that it is okay to mistreat and assault other human beings? That to me is a far bigger question mark. And I think we are so much as a society more open to giving the people that have, a, have assaulted somebody a second chance yeah. than we are to believe and support and help and stop. And I'm not going to get into all of it. I'm in Loudoun County. So this has been an enormously huge issue. Mm -hmm. But the thing that I keep not hearing is how do we help the kids that are assaulting other kids because they don't assault because they're born evil. They're assaulting and they're doing and, and, and are toxic to other people because of something that's going on with them that they need help. And that's and it's a, a cry it's for a help. lack of education. Yeah, it's, there's a lot know, going on there. A lot of it, a lot of it is that failure to educate from very young, young, and so that they grow up with these ideas and these understandings that are not true, and that that leads to a lot of this. But yeah, it that is the problem. It, we are more likely to believe the accused than the accuser, right. and this is the only topic where that happens. No one, no, no one looks at a murder victim and says, you know, let me give you a second choice. Let me give you a second chance on that. I bet you didn't mean to do that, yeah. you know, or, and we don't focus on like, how do we prevent people from being murdered? murdered like we don't right. go, well, it's your fault. You were in that, like this, you're right. Like this is the mm-hmm. one thing that is just so backwards and there's so much shame put on the person that's victimized the people and I've heard the trauma that comes once you admit it and say something is more profound than the actual original assault 
for a lot of people. A lot of times. Brutal. And so, of course, people aren't coming out because they're just subjecting themselves. And so we, we can, I could go on for so long because this is such, there's just so many things that are broken um, when it comes to this that we need to figure out how to address. But I want to thank you, Nina, for coming on, for sharing your story, for sharing so much great information. How can people find you um, and work with you and have you come speak yeah, so I have a website. It's ninacorcoran.com and you spell Nina N-E-N-I-A. I know my parents are think unique is cute. <laughs> um, so ninacorcoran.com. I am on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. Um, I'm even on TikTok because that's all that. That's where that's the teens awesome. are. So yeah. I'm on TikTok. Um, but uh, I am uh, available for answering questions and, and speaking to both teen groups and parent groups. So please, if, if that's something that you are looking for in your community, please, please reach out. Um, happy to do that. Yeah. Thank you so much for doing what you're doing. It's so critically needed and people need someone that's giving them a voice. So thank you so much for doing that. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. Absolutely. And thank you, parents, for taking time out of your busy day to spend with us. I'm actually going to put a link to the um, list of resources um, for reaching out to get help if you do need help. Um, I think that's the most important thing for people to know where to seek that. Um, And if you enjoyed this episode and the helpful strategies Nina shared with us or know people that are struggling with this, please take a quick moment to share it with them, rate and review so people can find it. And until next time, have a peaceful, positive, calm day. And that's a wrap. Thanks for joining me today on Parenting Teens with Dr. Cam. Make sure to visit my website, www.askdrcam.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, or via RSS, so you'll never miss a show again. While you're at it, if you found value in this episode, I'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, and hey, why not share it with a friend too? Be sure to tune in to my next episode. And remember, parenting teens may not be easy, but with my help, it can be a whole lot easier than this.